Every group that sticks together has a unity factor. They have some basic focus that welds them into a oneness that is bigger than themselves. The most powerful demonstration of love and commitment should occur when believers gather together as a church. Why then do churches so often become battlegrounds of interpersonal strife instead of family gatherings of love? We invite you to listen in on this family meeting as our study leader Dave Wurtson challenges us to overcome all those little misunderstandings that can divide us by riveting our attention on our only head, Jesus Christ. The Church of Jesus Christ should have a unity factor of total dedication to Jesus Christ, that is, the historical Jesus who is the Christ of faith. We are here today to sing Wonderful and Marvelous is Jesus to Me, and it's the Jesus that's revealed in the Holy Scriptures, and that's the Jesus who is our Christ of faith. You need to make a conscious decision that you're going to devote yourself to live for other believers. And let's pick it up there in Romans chapter 12, verse 10. What I'm trying to motivate you to do by the Spirit's power is to make Christ the absolute reason for your existence. Every one of you have a central focus in your life. But you know, Christ is someone that you can't see. Christ is someone that you have to take by faith. You have to read in the Bible and you commit yourself to what the Bible says about him. But there are people that are objective to you. In other words, Christ, when he rose again and ascended to heaven, sent his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is among us to cause us as a group, as a group of believers, to be in love with Christ. But we express our love for Christ by being in love with one another. In fact, 1 John will make the incredible claim that you're just whistling through your teeth if you say, I love Jesus, but I can't stand Jesus' people. And so what I'm challenging you to do here, Romans 12, verse 10, Paul says this. He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. And so I want to begin in talking about the unity essentials. What are the things, what are the actions What are the commitments that we need to make in order to really have Christ as the focus of our church? The first one is that you need to make a conscious decision, and I need to make a conscious decision, that we're in this together, that we're going to be devoted to one another. And that is a choice. A church family is a lot like a marriage relationship. In other words, you start out possibly, if you come to a church family, it's very warm, it's very accepting, you hear the Word of God taught, it's kind of like the wedding ceremony, and you're all excited, it's a nice warm feeling, it's a gooey feeling, and and everything is just marvelous, and what a marvelous church this is, and the people seem to be very friendly, and it just seems to be exactly what you're looking for, and you go along for about six months, and then you start to really get to know people, and somebody in the church family rubs you the wrong way, and somebody in the church family maybe wipes you out in business, maybe you thought you had a dear Christian friend in the church, And they said, man, I've got a special deal. Maybe something like, boy, you really need to make this investment, or could I borrow some money for a special deal? And suddenly you get really wiped out by a fellow believer. It'll happen. That's when you get down your feet right on the ground and you make some decisions about the way you're going to live your life. And you can either make a decision that you say, I know that God's people still have an old nature. I know that God's people at times 
can really act like the devil. But I also believe that from my reading in the New Testament, that the Spirit of God, by grace, not because they deserved it, not because they've earned it, not because their performance measures up to it, but by a total free act of God's grace, God has made those people that believe in Christ as Savior His children. And as I've got to make a choice, I'm going to make a choice that I'm going to be devoted. I'm going to make a commitment that I'm going to live for God's people. And I want to challenge all of you to do that. I want you to do that in your marriage, and I want you to do that in your relationship with fellow believers. Like I mentioned to you, believers have hurt me the most in my life. In fact, the people that you love the most are the people that will hurt you the most. Because does it hurt you more for a total stranger to come up and punch you in the nose? Or for your own wife to punch you in the nose? Well, you say it depends upon how strong my wife is versus how strong the stranger is. But you know what I'm talking about, right? You see, love, if you're devoted to someone in love, the more devoted you are to them, the more potential for hatred and hurt and anger. Why do you think in a marriage you go from the ethereal, just the unbelievable euphoric experience of the marriage night to the anger and the hate and the lashing out of a divorce court? Why is there that unbelievable swing? Because the closer someone gets to you, the greater potential there is, the more vulnerable we are to one another to hurt one another. And so a church family is kind of like the atom. If you think about the atom, you have electrical forces, the positive and the negative, right in the nucleus of the atom with all those protons crammed in together. The whole thing ought to just blow apart. But there's other forces. I believe that ultimately, ultimately, it's the hand of God upon all of creation that keeps it together. Colossians says that in Him, everything holds together. And so all the universe holds together by the power of Christ. And your decision to remain devoted to one another is the only thing that as you choose to commit your life to Christ, you choose to live for Him, you choose to stay together even when you've been hurt and you keep working at working through the things that are blowing you apart. That's what Paul is talking about, a decision to devote yourself to live for other believers. And I will say this, believers have hurt me the most, but they've also loved me the most. In fact, their love in the long run far outweighs their hurt. There's no other people on earth, I promise you, when we go to Poland, there will be believers there that can't even speak our language, but there will be a family unity. Now, how many of you have found out, have you ever heard the expression, blood is thicker than water? What do we mean by the expression, blood is thicker than water? Okay, we're talking about a very specific kind of sticking together. Family. How many of you have fights in your family? When you get together at a family reunion, it's a little bit hard. But when there's a crisis, what happens? Suddenly, what comes out of the woodwork? Family. Blood ties. Even as you grow older, don't you find out some of those blood ties are a lot deeper than you'd ever imagine, especially at a time of crisis when there's a death or a great, great crisis in your family. It's unbelievable how there's this great unifying force. You might be opposed to one another. You might fight. You might be angry. Some of you have talked about brothers that you have 
And when you get together, you argue and you fight, but just let somebody attack one of those brothers, and man, it's all together. Well, I want to say this to you, that family ties, if we're really honest, can be splintered, can blow apart. But what Paul is bringing out in our devotion to one another is that the love of Christ, the blood of Christ, that's brought us together in this unity, it's stronger than the blood ties of physical family unity. Jesus Christ said one day, when they said, your mother and your brothers are outside, Jesus said, these are my mothers and my brothers and my family. Those who do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is that you might believe in the Son. And you'll find that if you devote yourself to the believing family, to the community of believers, that your ties, the blood ties that join you together in the family of God will even become stronger than the family ties. In fact, some of your families will even reject you because of your commitment to Christ. But the love of Christ's blood that's caused us to be born into his family is even stronger than those family ties. So the very first unifying essential is that you make a decision. I'd really challenge you to make a conscious decision in your life. Maybe write it in your Bible. I'm going to live my life devoted to other believers. I'm not going to wander away from the fellowship of God's people. If I get hurt, I'm going to hang in there. I'm going to believe that ultimately love will, will supersede and will overcome even the hurt. Now, the next nitty-gritty principle, if you're going to make that decision, is you're going to have to learn to accept one another. And I'm going to have to learn to accept one another. Look at Romans chapter 15, verse 7. It says, accept one another then. Just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Now that is a rough one. To accept one another. Now I want you to think with me for a minute about how we usually accept people. First of all, I want you to understand it's very hard to accept people. Do you know that when somebody walks into the doors of our church that's never been here before, that they feel very strange? They feel it's very uncomfortable? You say, well, man, what, what are we doing? Why is it like that? It's nothing that we're doing. Do you realize in the early days of the Indians, you know what an Indian would often do when they met a stranger? Well, if Louis Lamour is right, which he does a lot of research, Louis Lamour says that the Indians would often just kill the person they met. You say, why is that? Because the way that we are in our sinfulness as human beings, in our sinfulness, we have a natural response to someone that's strange. We think that they're our enemy. Automatically, someone that's different than we are, someone that's from a different part of the country, someone that has a different color skin, somebody that speaks a different language, anybody that's different, that's strange, we think is an enemy. If you don't think that's true, if you travel in another country and you don't know the language, and you'll listen to someone talking, what goes through your mind? The first time I went to Israel, we'd be on the bus, and the guides would be talking on the bus. And the first time I went to Israel, I hadn't heard enough Hebrew orally and, and vocally to be able to hear it with my ear and understand it. I could read it on a page in the Old Testament, but I hadn't heard it vocalized. 
And so the first time I went to Israel, I couldn't understand anything they were saying. And you know what I used to do? I was the guide on the trip, so I sat right up there with the tour guide from the Israeli government. And these tour guides would be talking together, and they would talk with the bus drivers. I'd be sitting there going, boy, they hate our guts. They're making fun of us. Man, they're talking about us. Have you ever done that? How many of you, when you've heard someone speaking a foreign language, thought they were angry? You thought they were mad. It sounded like they were really mad. You know, the last time I went to Israel, I was beginning to be able to pick up enough. Like when the tour guide talked to the bus driver, I knew enough words that I knew he was saying, we ought to stop at McDonald's restaurant here, let the Americans have a little hamburger so they feel at home. And uh, be sure to call ahead to Netanya, make sure the hotel reservations are right. How many think those are really angry words? The tour guy was really angry with us in the bus, wasn't he? Actually, that's what he was saying. The last time I went, I could follow a lot of what he was hatching over. You know what he said most of the time? Turn here, turn there, go to that site, be sure to call ahead. That's all he was saying. He wasn't saying anything about us. If anything, he was taking care of us. He wasn't angry with us. I was all wrong. But my heart, that human heart, was turning away from him. You know, we do the same thing in our relationships together. I've noticed, like, at a wedding last night, and in a wedding, you have a big mix of people. Very interesting mix, because you have the family of the bride, the family of the groom, and often the family of the bride, really the extended family of the bride, the extended family of the groom, they don't really know one another. In fact, even in a wedding, you set them on both sides. Kind of like a football game. You know, you'd be sure to have the spectators separated. And, but, but in a reception, there's some fascinating things that happen. If you step back from a reception, you look over the reception, all the groups will gravitate towards one another. The family that knows one another, they'll talk together. And then the other family that knows one another, they'll talk together. Those from our church that know one another, they'll talk together. Now there's some brave souls in any group who are more accepting. And they're really the courageous ones, the great conquerors, because they'll take forays away from these little pockets of familiarity and they'll go out and make contact. But it's a very difficult thing to do. It's hard to accept one another. It's hard to reach out to someone that's strange. How many of you have ever tried to reach out to a stranger and then you thought the stranger didn't like you? How many of you have ever met a stranger and, you, and it was a situation where you had to reach out? Maybe you were the boss or maybe you were meeting a new boss or maybe you was at a party and someone says, why don't you go and make somebody feel at home, so you go over there and you sit down and you try to talk and you start talking and you think the person just hates you. How many of you have then concluded you're just not gifted to reach out to people? What I'm trying to do today is expose all the feelings. We all have them. Every one of us have them. Any new place you go, you don't feel at home. I don't care if it's the warmest, the most accepting, the most open place. Any place that you go, you're going to feel strange. And what I want to say that is in God's family, we need to learn to accept one another. Now you say, well, Dave, how in the world do we ever get together? Well, what happens is given enough time, the ice will be broken and people will start to get together. And the next thing I want to talk to you about accepting one another is you have a basis by which you accept one another. If you go to A&M, and you meet somebody else who goes to A&M, I don't care how long ago it was, 
The unifying factor of an A&Mer is that common experience of going to A&M. Now, what I want to challenge you as a church family is our unifying factor needs to be the fact that Christ has accepted all of us. You say, man, well, I know what Christ did. Christ looked at us and he saw, man, we were intelligent people. We were brilliant people. And Christ up there in heaven, he looked down at us and he said, boy, heaven needs intelligent people. Boy, let them in. We really need them. Is that how you got into God's family? You are all good singers. That's how you got in. I know that's how you got in. You could sing really well, and God said, you all sing on key, so we'll let you into the family. Obviously, I'm teasing you. How did you get into God's family? Now, I want you to think about this. You know, we all sing about this, and we all believe it in Scripture, but I find it very, very hard to really believe it. You know how I got into God's family? Christ looked at me. And he says, but God commended his love towards Dave Wirtz, and in that one he was a rank sinner, a little worm that didn't deserve heaven at all. Christ died for me. Why did Christ die for me? Why did Christ accept me? Totally by grace. Is that the way we accept people in the church family? One of the things that's going to be the biggest challenge to our group is to convince the world that we are an accepting community. You know, human relationships have to be built on, I've made a decision to devote myself to one another. Number two, I'm going to accept one another just the way Christ accepts us. And therefore, I'm going to have to forgive because God is not finished with any of this yet. How many of you ever thought you found the perfect group of believers? Come on, how many of you have ever gotten in a group and you said, oh yeah, man, that's... That's exactly what I've been looking for. That's marvelous. I've never met people like that. How long did it last? Doesn't last long. You know why? Because the reality of living on earth is every one of us have a beautiful new creation in Christ. And then every one of us have a dirty, stinking old nature that has been totally defeated in Christ but we forget it at times, and so we still let it to have power over us. We never have total perfection, I don't believe, on this earth. And therefore, as long as I live with you, the longer that I live with you, I can have great potential for Christ's likeness, but I can also, by unbelief, fall into living out the old man. In fact, if you ever meet somebody that says, oh, I never have any trouble at all with the old man, it was totally eradicated five years ago. I know of a preacher who had someone come up to him and say, Pastor, I have reached a state of total perfection. Well, the pastor just looked at them right in the eye and went like that, right on their big toe. And you can guess what happened. He said, well, I'm sorry, your state of perfection has just ended. In fact, I find that the more that I grow in the Lord, the more astounded I am at how terrible I can be. Now, some of you get very discouraged by that. Now, you need to be horrified at your sin. You need to keep allowing Christ to forgive it in your fellowship with Him. But you need to realize realistically that that old nature is not going to be totally eradicated until we go home. And therefore, if a church is going to stay together, they're going to have to forgive one another. Remember that, you know, they, they wrote that song, Love Means Never Having to Say You're Sorry? That could only come out of New England, the Ivy League. They have real problems knowing what real life is like. Real love will say they're sorry maybe 77 times a day. Forgive me, I was wrong. 
And those are some of the biggest words of human relationship. I was wrong, and I hurt you. Will you forgive me? Forgiveness needs to be, in fact, in Colossians chapter 3, let me read that verse, Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Bear with each other. It sounds like Paul was really involved in practical church living. Bear with one another. Any of you ever had a bear with somebody else in this family? Bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. You say, how do I do that? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's a very important verse. You say, Dave, how do I learn to forgive? You need to focus on the way that God forgives you. A lack of forgiveness, and I want to say this as we close. This is as far as we'll get today. I believe that the lack of forgiveness, a very special kind of lack of forgiveness, is keeping many from really getting close to other people. And it's not just the lack of forgiveness of someone else, but a lot of you haven't forgiven yourselves. You ever notice how hard it is to forgive yourself? A lot of you have sinned in the past. You've done things that you're horrified about. You just cannot believe that you did it. You were raised a certain way and you went away to college. You slipped away from the Lord and you just acted in rank horror. Some of you say, Dave, there's thoughts that go through my mind that I just can't imagine. If I was really a child of God, I would never have those thoughts. And Satan is sitting on your lap saying, if God really knew about you, he would hate your guts. Or Satan will say, God really does know about you, so you can never be the person that God wants you to, want you to be. And you know what I want to tell you something? That is the most cunning, pious lie that can ever be told. In fact, I've stressed this to you before, but I want to remind you of it again, because I believe in my counseling, I see this satanic lie coming up more than any other lie I've ever heard, and that is this. I am too wicked. I am too bad. I'm really being honest with you. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. And therefore, it's just hopeless. And I sit there and go, boy, you know, you're right. You are being so honest with me because it is hopeless. You are the worst, the most honoriest sinner I've ever met in my life. And really, to be honest with you, I think you're going to act in great integrity by just forgetting all about Jesus Christ and forget all about God because it's obvious you'll never make it with God's family. So you might as well go out and live in Satan's family. Have you ever felt that way? That's Satan's big lie. You say, Dave, what's wrong with it? It sounds very pious. In fact, if you're, a, if you're an immature counselor, if you haven't done a lot of counseling, you'll sit there and go, wonder of all wonders, the honesty, the integrity. This person really recognizes how sinful they are. No, they don't. It's the ultimate pride. It's the ultimate pride. You say, how is that? Because the whole thing is a lie. God says there is none righteous, no, not one. But God says the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from every sin. And when someone looks at God and says, God, you could not forgive me. You could never accept me. You could never be devoted to me. I could never become your child because I could never be good enough. As long as someone says that, they're living in the hardness and the pride of their own heart. And they're rejecting the reality of God because God says, I love you. I want to make you my child. 
I will never reject you from being my child. You belong to me. Through the blood of Calvary, your sins can be clean. And as you live the Christian life, when Satan starts to say, why don't you just forget all about being in God's family? That's a lie. I want to close today by saying to every one of you, God has not fumbled the ball in any one of your lives, and none of you have fumbled it bad enough that you cannot become the man or woman that God wants you to be.